and welcome to Two Tacos High, a handbell podcast. I'm Brian Seaman. And I'm Nick Hansen. Here at Two Tacos High, as always, we are here to talk all things handbells, current and upcoming handbell happenings, and any interviews, guests, and other surprises. Today's episode is really thanks to a lot of you out there. On Facebook, we had put up a post, or Brian did, on the Handbell People Facebook page, just asking about all the big myths that are out there about our instrument, and boy, did you all deliver. Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a lot of kind of myths or misconceptions about the instrument that have floated around and I've seen on social media. And so we definitely wanted to do an episode to address that. And then I just decided to jump in and make the post just to see what all of you came up with. And um, some of those were not surprising at all because I've heard them. We've we've all heard them many times before. Um, And some of them did surprise us a little bit. So we wanted to go through and cover some of the ones that you mentioned or questioned. And then some of the other ones that we've heard throughout our time in handbells and kind of let's bust some of those handbell myths. And as you can guess, the uh, absolute number one is about the gloves. Oh, yeah. And not surprised at all. So much so that we've done an entire episode on that already. Exactly. If you go back to episode 11, 11. Mm -hmm. we had Michelle Sherrick, Josh Fitzgerald and Justin Wooten on to discuss the merits of gloves versus no gloves. And understand it's not a. It's not an episode we, where we are just completely one-sided on this. Like, you all have heard us enough say that we are we don't wear gloves when we play. But it was a great episode that talked about the topic and the purpose behind, a little history. So if you haven't checked it out just from a kind of educational and different perspectives uh, standpoint, check that out. Episode 11. I think probably the uh, other one that's pretty common, especially here in the States, is that handbells is strictly a Christmas or church. Sometimes, no offense to the church ladies, but church ladies instrument or ensemble. Yeah, and handbells are so much more diverse than that. Right. And I think a lot of that idea that handbells are only played at Christmas or, or only played at church comes from where most people are familiar with seeing the instrument. Mm. If you are a regular attendee at church and that's the one time you see handbells, or even if you're not a regular attendee, but Christmas happens to be the one time when you do go to church and that's the one time you see handbells, there they are. it's easy to associate those together. But Obviously, with Nick and I both being school teachers and having youth ensembles there, we see the opposite of the sort of stereotypical demographic of handbells. I've got, uh, I teach at an all-boys school, I've got the, it's the lacrosse guys, it's the baseball guys, the the, the cool guys at school play handbells. Mm-hmm. And you even, I don't know if you told the story here, but like you and I both, we do, we do a lot of pop music with our kids and we let them kind of make those choices. Like, what was the song they chose last year, your high school boys? I think the one that you were referring to is a couple of years ago, they chose Taylor Swift Love Story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this year, we actually got Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls wow. and Buddy Holly by Weezer. That's They both could work quite well. They both could work quite well, <laughs> but I was like, those are, that's my generation of songs. Not to go on a tangent here, but we, so in our high school, we have, and this is very confusing, they have a bells club, which has nothing to do with bells. It's the, the bell between classes club. So they're always choosing what songs to play during those transition times. And a lot of times you're getting some classic rock and things. So that gets onto the kids' minds. And it's it's a much better choice palette in the uh, the high school kids than it is like the seventh grade graders, mm-hmm. that's yeah. for sure. Which I think flows nicely into another kind of myth of handbells is that it can only play like religious or classical right. style music. It's a much more diverse instrument and can play and sound good covering a ton of different genres obviously nick and i had just mentioned pop music and a lot of pop and rock music works really well on handbells mm-hmm. we've had a number of great arrangers do jazz interpretations heart morris right at the top of my head is just 
he's he's really tapped that well. That's his knowledge base, his background with with his percussion and everything else works so well. And quite frankly, this does connect even with the 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 church side of things another way because when we think about it, it's it's the culture of us here in the states of where this has all come from because we did have handbells grow in this country right within the church and the Christian church especially, and as it grew in popularity throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, there it was. Whereas if we look at many other countries around the world, they're much more education centric and school centric. So yes, you'll have those those Christian hymns and other and and tunes pop up in those cultures, but you're also going to find a lot more, as you would here too, folk songs from those countries and original compositions from students and and composers worldwide. It's just it's such a wide berth of of repertoire. We've we've touched on this before, but. That's why we love symposiums so much as we get exposed to music and composers that quite often here in the States, we just don't. And it just gives us so much more experience of such a vast array of, of wonderful music. Absolutely. And even within a church, and I've definitely heard this before, and this popped up as one of the comments too, that the handbells are only useful in a traditional worship service. Right. And when you go to a praise and worship or a more contemporary worship service that you can't have handbells, which is... Uh, it's ironic, actually. Uh, yeah, kind of ironic. <laughs> like, um, as one of the newer instruments right. yep. to come into to modern usage, there are a ton of praise and worship songs and contemporary arrangements already out there. And you can absolutely use handbells to support that type of worship. And I, I've heard... Too many times of, oh, my church switched to a contemporary worship service, so we're getting rid of our handbells. It should go hand in hand. It really should. And it's necessary, and I'm sure these have happened in many of these situations, to have those conversations with your minister of music or, or lead pastor, whoever is kind of in charge of the, the services. If you could even just get an example, like just one service, could we just let, give us a shot? And even if it's just a little bit of a added layer of sound to to the music being performed like take the piano take the keyboard score and kind of go off of that a little bit like just something to get it get it going like really shoot your shot there go for it yeah and i will say that pretty much and this is one of the guidelines i use with my students when choosing pieces to play on bells if it works for piano it works for keyboard yeah. it will work for bells yeah. it's it's very similar percussive type instrument and so anything that you can do on a piano you could do on bells the other one, too, that's related to that is, and I've only seen it lately because we're now in the season of Lent, is churches that are saying, you know what, no bells during Lent. And I will take one step back here from a kind of religious context perspective. I know that in some church cultures, there's no instruments, period, allowed during the Lenten season because within their understandings and their beliefs, any instrument is considered too much of a happier exclamation of worship, much like the word Alleluia. That they're like, we need to remove this from this season, but it will come back at Easter, etc. So I can see from from that religious context for just clumping handbells in with the rest of the instruments, I could see that as a connection. But if it's just a, yeah, they sound too happy and they won't offer anything that fits the mood of the season, yes, those leaders are incorrect there and don't know what they're what they're missing. Frankly, there are a ton of compositions, even original compositions, that fit that Lenten mood really yeah. well. However, if you were to go to, again, your minister of music or lead pastor and say, okay, what's the Lenten hymn you connect with during the season? If they give you an example, then say there's a wonderful arrangement of that that we would love to contribute to worship. Give us the opportunity. Like that might be a way in. Yeah, absolutely. Another common theme that I've heard, and several of you also pointed out on the comments of this post, was that handbells are 
not a real musical instrument that you can't play musically on it. It's more of a novelty thing. And that one is another one that I, I understand where it comes from because there are definitely examples. There are examples on any instrument mm-hmm. of it being played non-musically. But there are also so many examples of this instrument being played and making a tremendous musical performance. And it's a little bit harder to do when you've got to coordinate 11, 12, 13 people all playing the same way and balancing and blending and listening to each other and creating that musical line. It's a little bit more difficult to do than in either on a keyboard where you're in control of all the notes yourself or even in a band or orchestra setting or a choral setting where you're you have full control of one whole part yourself. So it's definitely more difficult to do, but it's it is entirely possible and it is really impressive than when that does happen. I want to I want to impact this one a bit more. I, w- I want in a way for those of you out there, let's to kind of put you in hypothetical situations. And to be completely honest, the one that always comes to mind for me is National Seminar in Dallas. I forget which year when at the same time National Seminar was happening. There was also, I think, a firefighters convention. And Michael Glasgow was essentially convincing all the people there who were there for the firefighters convention that Hambles is real and they should all come to watch all the concerts. And just like showing videos and everything else. It's like I would want to have some 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 fodder for you all out there to say, like, okay, let's say you're in this conversation with someone that that's saying handbells isn't musical, handbells isn't a real instrument. Like, what are ways you can kind of counter some of those questions, right? Brian, you just addressed the validity of the music. Like, yeah, if if someone says, Well, all we hear are bells at Christmas or in the church setting, then and they're not always played well together, you can always rebuttal with, okay. Let's listen to a fifth grade strings classroom, uh-huh. right? Like you, if, if that's all you're exposed to, sure, that's not going to be something you want to listen to that much for a long time. But we all have heard fantastic orchestras and string ensembles. We know what the capabilities are. So through the power of the Internet and YouTube, you have so much at your disposal. You can look up fantastic groups and performances to showcase. Here's what's possible. And some of this, I think, is, again, because of how young this instrument is in its current form mm-hmm. there hasn't been time to really fully develop right right professional handbell ensembles like there are professional orchestras professional orchestras have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years mm-hmm. and so yes there are examples of people who are literally paid full time to play their instrument and play it really well in orchestral settings or choral settings and things like that but that doesn't exist in handbells and so for all of us we're we're sort of still stuck in a whatever much time we can put into our hobby. But even now, I think there are still a lot of, even these volunteer ensembles that are performing at a high level. And my hope, I would love to see full professional handball ensembles in the same vein of these major symphony orchestras. I would love to see that form and where people are paid full time to play handbells and see what the instrument is really capable of when you've got somebody who's just fully devoting their life solely to that. Exactly. Because as you just said it, it's, we talk choral music, choral singing has been around, I'm sure, since man could make noise. And while rhythm, there's certainly been a lot of studies that rhythmic foundation has also been around for, for millennia. Orchestra, orchestras, et cetera, hundreds of years, choral groups, hundreds of years. If you just look at our instrument from that lens, it's not, it's, we're, we're still at 70 years of the guild this year. And we're not even at like 100 years of bells in the States. So it's, yeah, the develop, we're still in development phase, if you mm-hmm. will. And building up foundations. And one day there could be some entrepreneur slash philanthropist is like, Bells is my jam. I'm just going to start a foundation and it can get there. But we have we have catch up to do compared to so much of the other other uh, instruments and, and ensembles already developed. 
there's also two other aspects that I, I'll get into a little bit here. One is the handbells being a novelty instrument. And I think some of that comes from there definitely is an element of some groups and some performances that involve kind of novelty theatrics. And it is a thing in handbells to wear silly hats when you play silly songs. Mm -hmm. And I have shared my personal thoughts about that on this <laughs> podcast before. There is an element of that, of, of sort of less than serious performance of this instrument. But that also exists in other ensembles as well. And there isn't saying that one way is this is the way to play the instrument. And this is if you, only if you play in this style, can you play this instrument, that it's only a novelty instrument or that it's only a serious instrument. There is room for both. And that brings to the second point of, unfortunately, there seems to also be a lot of gatekeeping in handbells mm, of yes. if you're not going to play it correctly, don't play it at all. And I know that came up uh, most recently with the sharing of the OK Go video. Mm -hmm. And if you have not seen them, OK Go is a rock band that uses handbells both in their recorded album, but also as part of their live show. And their technique is definitely questionable, mm -hmm. but they're playing handbells and introducing them to a new audience. But I have unfortunately seen comments on some of those posts of, oh, if you can't play them correctly, don't play them at all. And I don't think that's the right approach to handbells either. There is room for everyone in this instrument. And right. so there, there can be fun, goofy novelty performances. There can be really good musical, serious performances and every range in between. And you don't need to be experts at it in order to perform it. I would rather be in a situation where if I was hypothetically in charge of a CUNY ensemble and someone showed up and said, I just learned about this instrument because I saw OK Go live and I thought it was amazing and I heard about you guys, I want to learn more and they have poor technique, that's fixable. But to have them be exposed to it and want to know more about it, that's fascinating and, and needs to be developed more. So 100% there. Yes, yes, yes. Also want to address too that like along the novelty side of things, where someone could certainly suggest, I mean, you can't go to school for bells. Yes, you can. I did. Like, yeah, that exists. I have a handle emphasis. I just literally looked up online because I was curious because I hadn't known. I looked up, is there a steel pan emphasis offered anywhere? And sure enough, yes, there is. Northern Illinois University has a steel pan bachelor's and master's programs of music with steel pan as the emphasis. So it's like just another example of a percussion instrument that is a bit of a novelty, sure, but there's... It's, it's a legit instrument. It's real. It has performance. It has education. It has background. Handbell says all of that. Whereas as far as I know, Concordia Irvine still is the only undergrad. And if, if folks out there, if I'm wrong, please do correct me. So I want to know of other programs. There are multiple now master's programs where they have said, you play bells, want to do this? Absolutely. We'll back you up. And we are going to support you in your master's pursuit of music doing this instrument. I know there's the one, the church music one through Concordia Mequon in Wisconsin, but others have done their master's degrees in handbell emphasis. We had Christian Giebert on talking about his doctorate that was all about handbells. We have hit the level of having this instrument and the education to learn about this instrument and to be credited, etc. We're there. That's That's been achieved. We just need more of you to do it, too. Get out there. Go take those programs. Yeah, and the more people that are interested in those types of programs, the more of those types of programs that will be offered. That's right. My students, the constant question I get from them is, are there going to be handbell scouts at their concerts <laughs> I get that for too. recruiting? <laughs> so we're not quite at that level yet. But but at the same time, I know you shared with your students, as, as I have with mine, handbell scholarships exist. Absolutely. 100%. If you find those schools, like Bucknell is one, I, pr I presume that scholarship, I think they do. But a lot of our students do look at Bucknell. It's in our neighborhood, if you will. It's, it's here on the East Coast. It's got a great bell program, as we know. So that's an opportunity. But of, at the same time, actually, there are other schools that are 
I can speak for of here in the East Coast where they have bells but are in closets. I think Wake Forest is one of those schools that one a former student of mine down there found a set of bells. So again, if you know those bells in closets, let us know that too. But there's so much opportunity here. So I think the the moral of that giant myth bust yes. is that handbells are an incredibly versatile instrument. They can be played anywhere, anytime, in any way. There are going to be some poor examples of bell ringing, mm-hmm. just like there are poor examples of other instrument playing. But there can also be some really great, and handbells are capable of some really great musical performances as well. And there's room for the entire spectrum within this instrument. Absolutely correct. Um, Got to give uh, Justin Wooten thanks for this one. The comment he made on Facebook was specifically about when you have the the giant two aluminum bells that only the, the lamb's wool mallets can be used on those bells. Now, the background of the reasoning for why people are are saying this is because those are what Malmark recommends. It's those are the their brand of instruments. Those are the mallets that they suggest for it. It makes sense why they would say that. But Justin's right. And to be quite frank with it, any percussion mallet you find can work on bells as long as you have the right approach to it. No, you're not going to take something that's would be used for a C8 and use that on the aluminum twos. We, we're much smarter than that. Well, you could if that's the sound you wanted. Yeah, you could. That's true. That might also be in Christian Kiebert's thesis. That's possible. <laughs> that's the, one of the tones. But that's a great. That's a great point. If it's the sound you want, literally, that's okay. Let me take that step back. Literally, any mallet can be used on any bell. That's a li- literal thing that can happen. But circumstances will vary <laughs> and sound will vary for what you're trying to achieve. The way I describe it, if you grab a true Tamar mallet or if you grab a Greg Asher's mount or if you grab a Schulmerker Malmark mount and you look and they have the description of these are the range for this mallet. Those are guidelines. It's like the Pirates Code from Pirates of the Caribbean. It's not a, a rule you must follow. It's what they have determined to find that this range of bells provides the best quote unquote sound production. However, you can go beyond that again if that's what you're wanting to do and willing that there might be some risk involved with the density of the mallet head to the type of bell you're using. But at the same time, if those mallets aren't getting the sound you want, take a bell into a music store, to a drum store, and just start experimenting to find that sound you want. If people look at you funny, you're like, what? I'm a musician bringing my instrument into a musician store to practice with mallets. Exactly. That's literally what you're doing. Yeah, the whole idea that handbell mallets are one specific to brand, you can only use Malmark mallets with Malmark bells, or that you can only use handbell mallets, which goes along with our glove topic before. There are no such thing as handbell gloves. They're mm. repurposed marching band gloves. There is no such thing as handbell mallets. The original ones were repurposed orf mallets. Mm-hmm. And a little side story, I was actually working at Schalmark at the time when the Greg Asher's signature line was of mallets was introduced. And we actually thought about not putting ranges on the mallets at all. Mm-hmm. And then backtrack that a little bit just to to give a sort of suggested range because we knew people were used to depending on that and also didn't want to end up in a situation where somebody took the hard blue one crashed it through a c3 and said well you didn't tell me i couldn't use this with this good point but again and as i said before as long as it provides the sound you want and you are doing it in the proper way you're still using proper technique and obviously using a harder mallet head or more dense mallet head with a larger bell, you're going to have to be more careful. Mm-hmm. Mallet properly up towards the lip, not at the waist of the bell where it's the thinnest. You can use any mallet with any bell. And you can use any mallet, like period, like outside in the percussion world in general, with any bell. Super silly story with this from an experience I had. This is back when we lived in California. We were at a festival and 
I was subbing and I wasn't actually performing in this festival. I was just subbing and stepping into someone's part for a second. And it was a suspended bell with mallet section. I did not have a mallet nearby. I was up in the sixes range. And so I had my bells and I had them in the air and I'm looking around and I see a pencil. So I just grabbed a pencil and I just did a very light technique on those on those bells with the pencil acting as the mallet, quote unquote, not harsh, not using the the leaded end, quote unquote, but the, just the tip, the other head of the, the head of the pencil. And I hear behind me, don't use a pencil, like really forcefully whispered towards my direction. And I'm like, OK, I understand that's not what this is used for. At the same time, I'm a musician. I know this instrument. I'm not harming the instrument. I'm not harming the pencil. So. No, I'm not saying everyone go out there by pencils, but then again, maybe that's a sound you want. Have we ever flipped a mallet over and used the other end? Yes, 100%, because it creates a very different timbre with that strike. So maybe that's what you want. So just happen to remind me of that story. So Brian, I got something for you. Yes. You know, only only guys can ring the bass bells. That's it. Nope. (laughs) That is, yeah. (laughs) And I have unfortunately seen too many ensembles where the lowest three positions are all the guys, and then everything from there on up is all of the girls. Right. And anyone can ring anywhere on the table. Yes. I I am a guy who rings up in the treble clef very frequently. I do also ring in the bass clef, but I I move around the entire range of bells. There are a bunch of female members of the ensembles that I directed at a church and community groups that ring bass bells and are really awesome at it. It's just a it's a, as I as we kind of could feel the frustration come through Facebook when when those myths were were posted there, because you're right. It is a frustrating thing to even say or speak, because we all out here, we we know of just completely like all girls schools even or and, mm-hmm. and, and groups and ensembles. And they're playing five, six, seven octave of this instrument. And you're not going to go up to them and say, did you know that girls can't play? Bass? Like, no, like you're li- no, you're literally seeing it done beautifully and well and musically like why it, it shouldn't even be a, a statement yet just like throw that myth out completely it's just all about ringing the bells correctly and that includes like if if i'm leading a baseball class i've taught before i'm not a very tall person i'm like five five i had a friend in college who was six one six two he and i are not going to ring those bells the same way and that goes just to any any person of any size stature whatsoever you are ringing properly based on large muscle groups, physics. That, that's what it takes. It has nothing to do with quote unquote gender. Not, nothing. Get rid of that one. Fight that one. Yes. Another one that I've heard often is my ensemble is a level two ensemble. Mm, or mm-hmm. my ensemble is a level four ensemble. Right. First of all, let's bust the myth that the levels that are printed on the music are in any way consistent. <laughs> yes. I didn't know where you're going with that statement, but you are. Yes. There, yes. <laughs> there are so many pieces. My favorite example of this is Karen Buckwalter's Nocturne in A minor, which is beautiful piece, very musical, has a ton of, uh, there's meter changes. There's a ton of bell changes. There's a, just to play it as musically as it is written is really tough. It's labeled as level two. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not. Conversely, there are so many pieces that are labeled at a higher level, at a level four or level even five, that are completely achievable by a quote unquote level three ensemble because of the way it's written and with a little bit of work. And so one, relying on just the number printed on the cover without actually looking at the music as a whole. And two, saying, oh, my ensemble only plays this level of music, I think are, are two 
great myths that we need to also get rid of. The yeah, the whole just leveling myth myth, I guess I think it's the best way to describe this one. The the challenge with let me take the first bit of that with leveling label for the ensemble. When the guild at the time, American Guild of English Hamlet Ringers, had started the leveling system, the purpose was so that we directors knew what to look for with certain criteria to help best fit that music to the ability level that our choir could accomplish. At the same time, though, it was to hopefully push the ensemble so that let's say you're fully aware that not that your choir is a level two choir, but that your choir rings level two music. There's a very strong distinction there. Uh But at the same time, you can say, great, I'm going to look for a level three or three minus that I can maybe start introducing in the fall to push towards the spring. So it's giving you goals. It's giving you musical objectives because you can see in in the the handbook etc that this is why this is a level three or level two and if it's an area you want to push a certain way a a rhythm or a a uh, maybe a certain different meter then you can start taking those steps to push the ensemble to start reading more challenging music not to level them up if you will but which certainly you could use that as a way to describe the goal but it really comes down to leveling is talking about what in this regard what the choir is able to perform, not they're stuck with the label of we just are a level two choir. I feel it's a little diminishing at times when you say it that way. Yeah, I can totally see that. The example you gave of uh, of the Nocturne, I have a flip one that I just got brought to my attention. We're, we started Capriccio at school with our kids and they're having a blast with it, which it's labeled a level five, seven, eight. It's Kevin McChesney's Capriccio. It's probably one of the most well-known bell tunes out there right now. And I've made the argument, if that were published today, it'd probably be a level four. Mm-hmm. And the reason being at the time, which I think it was late 90s, I might be wrong on that, that was seven, eight was challenging stuff. And that made it a real challenge for, for, for ensembles to really, oh my gosh, how do I play this part to level five? Yes. But we have grown so much as an ensemble since then. And the fact that the piece is such homorhythmic that it's a great teaching piece, that it works beautifully for choirs to get a sense of what that style of seven, eight feels. Ali O'Connell, who's way down in Australia, she is starting Festive Peel with her group, with one of her school groups, and it's a level two plus. It has 10-8 in it. And you might be thinking, wait, how does that work? Again, because the rhythm and the piece is so approachable from a teaching perspective that just because it has that 10-8 meter does not automatically equate it to a level fill in the blank here. There's more than just the, the meter to make those decisions. Absolutely. So obviously the Hambo Musicians of America Handbell Hand Chime Notation Guide has a set of guidelines for each level and meter, tempo, technique, all of those as far as how to determine what a level of a piece is. But a lot of those are up to interpretation too by the individual publishers and whoever's either composing and arranging the music, whoever's publishing the music. There are pieces of mine that I have, I would have said is one level and then I've sent it to a publisher and they've said it's a different level. So just restricting yourself to one specific level based on what it says on the cover or what your ensemble plays, I think is restricting your ensemble and the repertoire they can play. 100%. And as a bit of a tease, as the time of this recording, the Handbell Musicians of America is working on the updated leveling guide. So just stay tuned for that. Another one that gets gets brought up a number of times and from a lot of different angles is, and I'll be very general here to start, handbells as a kind of beginning instrument. and an angle that some of us have definitely heard this before, or let's be honest, maybe have promoted this to others before is saying, no music background is totally fine. Like with handbells, you got to know just your right hand from your left hand, just be able to count to four, we can fill in the rest. And 
if we look at that with a giant step back from a bigger kind of bigger look here, I can see where people like we bell people know that's not all the case, completely the case. But at the same time, we might be putting a little bit of a salesperson pitch on this and maybe want to make that first step be a little bit easier than it may seem because we know that once people are actively doing it, they're going to get hooked. So we don't want to scare them off by saying, you also have to change bells all the time and turn pages and you have to ignore things on the page. Like we don't want to throw everything at them at once. But I, I can see these, this way of promoting the instrument for new folks. I see it as a myth that has some truth to it, that it's okay to present it as counting to four, knowing left hand from right hand, and as a good starting musical instrument, even if you don't have much of a musical background. I would support this myth. Yeah, there's absolutely, again, I can see where using the all you need to know is your left and your right and count to four and you can play handbells and be an expert handbell ringer. That, that's that's a myth. There yeah. is no musical instrument that you can jump in with very minimal skill and and be a high level performer on that instrument. But when looking and comparing to other instruments and other ensembles, there is absolutely truth to handbells are much easier to pick up if you've never played an instrument before or even if you've never read music before. And a lot of that is just the nature of the instrument. You can produce an in-tune note from your instrument on a handbell within 90 seconds of mm -hmm. picking it up. Yep. There is no other instrument that you could do that with. Any sort of wind instrument, brass, woodwinds, you need to know how to actually make a sound in the first place, what embouchure you need, if you've got a reed, what, how much pressure you need mm -hmm. to get on that reed, if it's the flute or recorder is often used as a beginner instrument, how much air to put through without overblowing. You don't need to worry about any of that with handbells. You can pick it up and you can get a basic ringing stroke and damp within 90 seconds of picking that up. And to be honest, it all is, is about the fundamental idea of it being a percussion instrument. We could make a similar argument that sure, you could just walk up to a snare drum and strike it with a, with a stick and you've made a sound. There is truth to that. You have made sound and you have done it, but there is, as you just said, there's technique to it. There's a proper way to grip a drumstick and a proper way to, to approach a drum head when, when striking it with a drumstick. With handbell technique, it's likely a motion that students or any, we, I say students, but anyone has never made before. When you think about the fact of what we do, I don't think anything else out there exists that we do that motion in, in our, at least on our day-to-day -day lives. But yes, you can teach that motion very quickly to provide a proper tone. I agree. I think 90 seconds is a great timestamp on that. Yep. I'll totally agree. And it's, it's automatically in tune. And I laughed about this at our lower school winter concert that handbells, strings, band all played. And I've got nothing against band and string no. colleagues. I know Those you're going. Yes, did perfect, right with you. wonderful performances. Mm -hmm. But you can all picture what an elementary band concert sounds like with the squeaking clarinets, mm -hmm. the screechy strings for the orchestra. Like it's just it's those kids learning how to how to manipulate the, the instrument and, right. and how to produce the sound on there. Handbells went it. They played in tune chords. Sometimes there was wrong notes in there. Sometimes they were at the wrong time, but mm -hmm. it sounded more consonant already just because of the nature of the instrument. The other element is yeah, to begin, you only need to know two notes. You only need to know your left and your right. And we'll get into this a little bit further in the episode. Yes, there isn't a, well, your left hand is always the space and your right hand is always right. the line. <laughs> right. But to start out, if you are giving this instrument for the first time and you want to introduce somebody to it, that is a great way. You don't have to l read music. You don't have to read where on the staff your note is. You just have to know that the space one is your left and your line is your right hand. Even note values. It's pretty easy to teach half note, whole note, quarter note in terms of relation to a beat and, and a count to four. Mm -hmm. That is a skill that can be taught fairly quickly. And if you don't need to have to worry about reading pitch and you don't need to know about reading anything else, 
learning that rhythm skill in combination with the basic bell stroke that you also learned in 90 seconds, you can go from never having played an instrument before in your life to performing a recognizable melodic tune in about an hour. And I have done that before. Yeah. Yep. And I'm not saying that I've, I teach everything there is to know in handbells in an hour, <laughs> but I do an activity and I've done this with Anytime our school has the parents and special friends visiting day, yes, I get mm -hmm. all the parents to jump in and grab handbells. And I first, I give them a couple minutes first with their students to teach them how to hold the bell and make that sound production. But then I've got a modified version of our school song. And each individual position has its own individual sheet that has a reduced size version, but of the full score so that anybody who does actually read music can follow along with that. But then broken out with their own separate part just their two notes on their own staff mm -hmm. written out. The whole piece is all made up of whole notes, half notes and quarter notes. We don't get into any subdivisions beyond that. There are no bell changes, except there's one F sharp to F natural switch that just has <laughs> to happen because of the melody. So I put somebody at that position who knows what they're doing, but the rest are two bells each. And then right above their individual part, I write out the counts of one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So again, with the that real basic intro of how to hold the bell and produce the sound and stop the sound, they can follow along. They can count to four and see every time they see a note underneath the two that is on a space, they play their left hand when they say two. Mm -hmm. And we have gone from parents of these students who have many of them never played a musical instrument before, never read music before in their life to playing the school song that's recognizable as the school song within that 45 minute class period. Not to go off topic, but isn't your song men of harlick no okay never mind it's taken from a college fight song oh okay i'm so sorry and i forget which because if it was because i knew exactly where that chromatic bit was so i thought it was the same school song as well we have that's our okay but yeah back on track you're totally right and it's it really comes down to having proper materials having a welcoming environment and patient environment and just the enthusiasm to work with folks that will come into your room with varying skill levels and, and applying the right approach to everybody. You've shared with me before, but I think I'm in the same situation as you. Like every year you have at least one class, at least one where you have students with no experience, correct? Yeah, every year my sixth graders come in. Well, my sixth graders come in. There are always like two or three in that mm -hmm. who came from another local school that right. does have a handball program in third, fourth, fifth grade. So there are like two or three kids who have played handbells before when they come into sixth grade, but the rest of them, the majority of that class have never touched a handbell before. Okay, same. So that's with, with our fifth grade class. But you also then into a follow-up question. You have, I think, a, a high school class of very mixed abilities, right? Where some have been playing for years and others not at all. Yeah, I have a, the general upper school class is open to anybody. And I get students who have been playing through middle school and then students who have never played handballs, did another ensemble at Landon or came from another school that didn't do any sort of music ensemble. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm in the, I have that exact same situation as well. And it's, it's fascinating. In, in our situation in a school, we're fortunate enough that we have the the age group of humans where they're open to learning and they're engaged and want to be successful. And and then like that's why I can throw a seven, eight meter at seventh and eighth graders and it, they can do it because you don't tell them it's hard. You just give it to them and say, here's how this works. But if you give it to a set of adults, there could be a lot of 
preconceived notions like, oh my gosh, seven, eight is hard. And oh, what do I do? I got to change. Like they start finding all the problems. So yes, that's true. And that's sometimes the unfortunate side effect of, of the adults in us, right? Is that we, we look for the, the, the harsh and the hard first. But if we give the opportunity and again, have the patience and the will and, and perseverance to guide to the result, everything's achievable. It really is. That's the a beauty of this instrument of, again, which starts with space and line and, and most times counting to four. Yeah. And so we are in no way saying that handbells is the easiest instrument no. you could pick up. <laughs> no. It more comes down to it. Handbells are one of the instruments with the lowest barrier of entry mm. that you can you can go from never having read music before to producing something that is recognizable, a recognizable melodic tune relatively quickly compared to other musical instruments. And that's that's where it comes from. Hey, yeah, just to start out, you don't have to worry about techniques. You don't have to worry about changing bells. And some of that comes down to repertoire choices as well. Mm -hmm. But you can start playing handbells solely knowing your left from your right. You don't have to read notes on the staff where they are. Being able to count to four or as we get, again, repertoire choices as you get into more complex repertoire. But it is possible to do that. And so you can get people who might have a hesitation because, oh, I've never played music before and it, it takes a lot to learn an instrument. You can get started on handbells from a lower barrier of entry standpoint. Right. Totally, totally true. And now to build on this, as you teased a little bit before, talking about that kind of space line, left, right hand. I love doing this with, with my first year students saying, Here's are the, here are the ground rules. Your left hand is the space note. Your right hand is the line note. And eventually... I get to the point like we we are having great times with this foundational exercise that I'll tease them with. We have to learn this rule so we learn how to break it later on. And that makes them wonder, well, what do you mean to break the rule? We want to break the rule. And that's the Mm -hmm. whole, well, sometimes the bells go down and then you're playing a right hand with your space note like that. What? Yeah, this this I love this one. (laughs) Yeah. And and I've done that same thing as well. I my sixth grade class, we teach handbells for the first time. Space left line right. That's all you need to. And then as soon as we finish this, the first winter concert, we've jumped in and now I've started to open up the bass bells as an option. Mm-hmm. So that down to the threes where you've got more than two. So you're going to definitely have more than just space and line. And sometimes you might have, but also then some bell changes that so sometimes, hey, it's a little bit easier to actually pick this one up with your right hand, even though technically it's a space and it should be in your left hand. And exactly same idea of, hey, here's the rule. Now we're going to teach you how to break it, which is all music is. I think right. back to music theory <laughs> yes. days of like, here are all the rules of music theory. And then music theory two is here's how to break all of those rules. Yep. And so handbells are a great instrument in that you can literally rearrange them however you want. And I think this also came up as a, as a comment on our post yep. of, hey, if you've got on, you're playing piano and you've got this really awkward jump with your left hand, you've got to learn how to do that. You can't rearrange the piano. If you've got, a really awkward, I only play this note once and it's all the way down there. But actually, if I move it up, it plays in quick succession with these other two bells. I can just move it up and put it in between the two of them. You can rearrange the instrument however you want and you don't need to keep it in keyboard order. You don't need to play your left hand bell with your left hand. You don't need to play your right hand bell with your right hand. You don't even need to play the bells that you are assigned to and only the bells that you are assigned to. Wait, what? No, <laughs> I'm the CD6 person forever. <laughs> and... Some of that comes from yeah, in the band world, like that's your clarinet. Right. You don't pass your clarinet no. to your neighbor to play it for two notes and then get it back. Right. So I understand if you came from something 
another instrumental ensemble where everybody had their own specific part. And yes, a C6D6 is my part and I must play all of the C6D6 bells. That's one of the great advantages of handbells is you don't have to be stuck to that. You can, if you're sitting there and you're going crazy on your C6D6 part because you can't play them, but your A5B5 ringer to your left is going and twiddling their thumbs because mm-hmm. they only have one note on mm-hmm. beat three. Give uh, them something. Give them something. Pass, Pass it. it off. <laughs> I was a keyboard order myth person for a long time I, I played baseballs a lot in college and that was the only way i would do it and i'll be honest it was because i was a piano player so it made the most sense in my brain where all the bells would be and it took me all through those college years to realize there's a more musical way this can be accomplished and to this day i still can't quite get fully like quote unquote memorized like i if i revert bells to keyboard order if i'm covering bass i could play a lot of level one two three bass lines probably 100 successfully sight reading because I know where all those spells are. But if I change them to a, a more musical approach, it would still take me time to adapt to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. I like I've made peace with that. It's no no big deal. But that gone it with with my solo ringing as well as within the ensemble as well. Like to me, I'll be honest, like if, if I were to see a group take an E3 and move it up to like the AB5 position for a one-time ring, I would my initial gut would be like, eh, that's weird. But then I would understand. Mm-hmm. Like I still have the the immediate what do we reaction? But then I understand the purpose and meaning behind it. And because we can do that with our instrument to make it so an insane section becomes a lot less insane, go for it. <laughs> it's totally fine. If you ever want to really blow your mind about the keyboard order assignments, go look up the Hilti assignment method. Yes. Which shout out to Tim Waugh, who we did a lot of those as well with 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 Hilti's church group that Tim had took over for years. Yep. So you always come up, Tim. Think about it. Another comment that I wanted to address on the Facebook post was, will a C4 casting smash if it breaks off the handle and rolls onto the floor? (laughs) Which is an oddly specific question, but one that I can directly answer specifically to the C4 bell because it has happened in my classroom where the main assembly screw of a C4 sheared off, casting went flying across a tile floor. The student who rang it had the most terrified look on his face because he was sure that he had destroyed that bell. We went and picked it up. I checked it out, rang it, sounded fine, checked it out for cracks. Everything looked great. Put a new assembly screw on, reassembled the bell, and I'm still using that to this day. <laughs> so that is one where it, it really does depend on a ton of circumstances yes. and, and how it falls, where it hits, the angle if it hits, the surface. But bells are a little bit more durable than we think they are. We, we think of them as a very fragile musical instrument. And the truth is that any instrument that's finely constructed and engineered to produce a very specific sound is going to be fragile. But bells are made of bronze, which is a fairly durable metal. So not saying at all, go and test this. This is not something, please don't do this on purpose. But bells are a little bit more resilient than we sometimes think they are. The flip side of that is, and I've definitely heard this before, is, oh, the reason we use hand chimes with students is because they're more durable than bells. Right. Which that's Mm -hmm. definitely a myth. The aluminum that the hand chimes are made out of is a softer metal, and those are actually easier to crack than hand bells. They're just cheaper to replace. I was about to say, I think the truth to that is that when they do inevitably break or, or get broken or cracked, yeah, they can... They're not as expensive as the bells, right? Um, I will say, though, I'm on the flip side of the bell situation where I think my third or fourth year in Virginia Bronze, I was doing a very rapid bass passage and happened to knock the A3 bell to the floor, linoleum floor, and it it cracked right on impact. 
which related, we've probably most of us have seen that Facebook video of the uh, Westminster three. Presbyterian. Yeah. Yep. That, that flew off the handle. Um, so it is all circumstantial. It, it absolutely is. Honestly, because of the activity in my bell classroom, I think we literally knocked one chime on the floor probably once every two weeks. Mm-hmm. It's just how things move in the classroom so much. And our chimes are, are fine. We are, we're carpeted. We're not, it's great carpet, but it, but it is carpeted. So there's some, some dirt, some nice help there. The one I, I know, I'm not sure if the word you chose, the shattered word on the comment was, was specific because I would love like one day to do a, a bell concert where someone's doing their arranging between pieces to getting bells ready. And you seem like, no, I don't need that one. They just toss it over their shoulder and someone puts like a, a, a glass crashing mm-hmm. sound and, and like the audience <gasps> just clutching their pearls. But no, it's, it's, Will the shatter happen? No, but there's a very distinct sound when a bell cracks, cracks on yeah. the floor. It's it's one of those that you've maybe, maybe never heard of it before, but when you hear it, you know exactly what happened. One of the fun perks of working at Shulmerick was anytime any of the castings were rejected for any reason, they then had to be broken down and sent back to the foundry. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I've actually gotten the opportunity to take a ball-peen hammer to a bell casting and purposely crack it, which a fun way to get a little I frustration was gonna out. say that you can sell that experience <laughs> yeah that would be that'd be worth it like one of those the rage rooms that people have sometimes. yeah, yes. yeah this is, <laughs> i love that another one that came up on facebook and i've definitely heard this a bunch as well is that the ringer should change the clapper setting to oh, adjust right. the volume of a bell right and the clapper settings are not volume control knobs <laughs> really what that does the hard medium and soft on the clapper heads adjust the timbre of the bell. Usually the harder the clapper is, the more of the overtones you'll activate and it will be a little bit more of a brighter sound. And conversely, the softer the clapper is, the less of those overtones you get. And then it's a little bit more of a quote unquote softer sound. And so it, yes, there is a volume component to that, but volume is not the only thing that you're adjusting there. You are really changing the tone of the bells. And depending on the type of clapper you have and who was the last one to go through and set the clappers with the Shulmark Selective Strike ones, which are the ones that you actually have to unscrew to move the clapper head, there's a good chance that if those were refurbished by Shulmark or by somebody who is authorized by Shulmark, they've gone through and actually used those to voice the bells so that all the bells sound sort of equivalent tone across the whole range of bells, that one doesn't sound a little bit brighter, or a little bit harsher than the one next to it. And so... By actually changing those clapper settings, you're undoing that voicing. Even with the adjustable clappers, either Shawmark's Quick Adjust clappers or the Malmark standard clappers, you can still use those to do the same effect and balance the set across. And if you are in a setting, like if you regularly perform in a very large church stone sanctuary where you need the bells to project more. This is going to be my question. Yeah, You can set them to a, a harder, brighter setting um, because that brighter sound will carry more in that larger space. Conversely, if you're in a smaller setting, smaller room, you might want to turn them down a little bit. So you can, that altering that tone does have a use, mm-hmm. but not as a volume. I was going to say too, because I, I know I've not heard of this lately, but I have heard of ensembles that have adjusted the bells to the softest setting to create an effect with like a song they're performing, which I could certainly see some value in that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But you bring up the great point that, well, if you're if your bells are specifically voiced and you just re uh, or you undid that, you'll have to. It's not just a simple, OK, just everyone turn it back to medium and you're done. It it really can and should be revoice them as a set 
to get the tonal quality you want for the space that you're performing. Absolutely. And and there even with the Shellmark Select a Strike ones, if you get somebody who's voiced it who knows what they're doing, there's even it's not just on hard medium or soft. They'll actually I like I've done it before where it's on medium, but then slightly off of the medium mm -hmm. is actually where I want it because hard is too hard, but medium itself is too too soft. Another this is a little tangent on that too, I could see perspective. Like if you can imagine the size of a G3 bell and the size of an F sharp three bell, they're two very different size bells, right? The different uh, molds that they they use to create those sizes they're they're very different i would love to hear a g flat bell g flat three from the g3 mold like i would want to hear that timbre difference compared to the f sharp timbre difference and to be completely honest i'm sure that there's music out there that the tone of that g sharp three using the the g3 mold would be a better tonal timbre quality for the piece than what the f sharp would provide like I want someone to create different bells, like create a C mm -hmm. flat four or, you know, something like you know, make some, yeah. some jokey bits too. Like, I think there'd be some fun uh, approaches there that could be done. Yeah. And that we can definitely, and definitely have plans to talk about the physical characteristics and acoustics of handbells, but yeah, absolutely. So the, the basics of this is that the handbell starts at higher pitch because it is thicker. And then as you take metal off of it, it lowers the pitch of the bell. And at a certain size, you've got to then jump down to the next larger casting size because the metal would be too thin. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's the big one between the G3 and the F-sharp 3 is one of the biggest size differences. Right. And so in theory, you could take a G3 and shave more metal off of it to G3, get it down G to a G-flat 3, and it will sound noticeably different than the F-sharp that is made from the larger casting size. Which, by the way, that's why your C-sharp 3 bell is heavier than your C3 bell. There's your physics of the day there. <laughs> While we were on the topic of handbell acoustics, one that also came up is that sound comes out of the end. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think some of this is, again, we are used to seeing bell shapes, especially with brass instruments, mm -hmm. of, and that's where the sound comes out. However, the nature of handbells is that the metal itself actually vibrates, and it's the vibrations of the metal that cause the sound waves. And so the sound actually comes out of the side of the castings. And if you ever actually ring a bell hold it up to your ear, hold it upright with the, the cast side of the casting facing you, and then turn it so that the mouth of the bell faces you, you will actually hear a decrease in sound. You can literally hear that change. And so that is also one of the reasons why when you go and ring bells, you want to make sure that you keep the bell upright and don't point the mouth of the bell at the audience, because when you do, the sound's all going out to the side and not out to the audience in front of you. I love that effect, and I, I love doing that in the classroom where... I will take a larger bell for sure and do a very poor ring. I'll ring it not really wrong, but I'll ring it whereas the, the bell ends up being almost parallel to the floor and then lift it upwards so the students can really hear that difference also. Campanile, when they did their school shows when they were in existence, they would do this connected where they would take their larger bells, ring them loudly and walk through like the, the kids in the audience and have them feel the vibrations coming off the side of the bell and just the, the faces lighting up like, oh my gosh, I can feel the air move right near my hand was was such a really cool effect. So, uh, so some neat moments of teaching with sound and physics. Yeah, I've definitely had some of those moments. And my favorite one to do with the kids is have them ring like a C3 chime and then touch up to their nose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can feel the vibrations there. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This has been great, everyone, and we're so glad that you offered these uh, these thoughts for us. I think we got, got one more to end on here, and it was the myth that you can't fix a cracked handbell. So if we had that C4 fall to the ground, 
and a crack appeared and it was not the same C4 as before. There, the, the myth is that, well, it's done. You got to send it back to the factory. But that may not be true. And I, to be honest, from my perspective, I don't know how this could work. But apparently there's some truth to this. Yeah. So in just bell making in general, fixing a cracked bell is, I don't want to say common because it's obviously not common that bells crack, but it is an accepted practice hmm. and an accepted thing to, to do to repair the bells. And it works a whole lot easier on like large tower church bells okay. just because of the size that you're working with than it would on handbells. But it is in theory possible with handbells. And in fact, there is a story of Marlo Cohen, who was an expert at, at all sorts of handbell repair, actually successfully repairing a cracked handbell. Hmm. And his son, Greg, now carries on his business and continues to do the handbell repairs. And I definitely recommend him, especially for any of those unique like Pettit and Fritzen or old antique bells. Um, he'd be a great resource for that. But I have heard that Marlowe successfully actually repaired a cracked handbell. And one of the comments also underneath that one about repairing can't fix a cracked bell is, well, there's a certain cracked bell in Philadelphia that has never been fixed. <laughs> and that is also actually a myth. That bell, the Liberty Bell, obviously we we're referring to, actually has been cracked and repaired multiple times. Mm. The very first sort of test ring that they gave it was actually the first initial time that the bell cracked and it was repaired. It, so the bell was cast by the Whitechapel Bell Foundry mm -hmm. and it initially cracked. It was then given to John Pass and John Stowe, which is the Pass and Stowe that is also engraved on the side of that bell, who actually repaired that first crack. It then cracked again, repaired it again, cracked a third time. And at that point, they just sort of widened the crack to prevent it from going any further, put the bolt through it, and you get the crack delivery bell that you have now. But it, it actually had been cast and then broken and then fixed and then cracked again multiple times throughout its history. I did not know that. Mm. There's also a movement during the American Bicentennial that there's a group of people that got together and wrote a letter to Whitechapel that they wanted to return the Liberty Bell uh, for warranty repairs because it had broken. <laughs> and Whitechapel actually responded by sending a replica bell back over to the U.S. as a as sort of a bicentennial gift, right. but also as a sort of response to that. Of, well, we can't fix that one, but we can give you a new one. Instead, they should have been like, we would love to help you, but Pass and Stowe voided the warranty. Yeah. So we <laughs> I did not know all that history. That, that's really awesome. And I think a good place to kind of put these Mythbuster bits to an end. And quite frankly, I hope this is not the only time we do this. I, I, I bet there's more out there that we have oh, all totally. heard and experienced and would love to uh, continue. So this all came to pass literally because Brian put a post up on Facebook like yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and this was the, the beauty of being, uh, being able to put the podcast together and up in, in a short time frame is that we can get that feedback right away and get things going. So. We mean it when we say we love hearing from you, whether that's through contact to us directly or through Facebook or any other way. Like, yeah, we, we want to we want to be your voice and kind of answer your questions as you have them. So be on the lookout for more of those those posts in the future. And some of these can definitely turn into future full episodes. Mm -hmm. There was another comment about wanting to see like a visual representation of the different overtones and the different manufacturers, which is actually something that I've played with before and done. And I've, I've actually rung the different manufacturers of bells and kind of graphed out the uh, different overtones and, and strengths of each of those. And so that's something that we definitely want to work into a future episode. We've got plans to do a whole episode on handbell acoustics. If you have any other questions or myths that you would like us to 
confirm or bust, please reach out to us. The best way is two tacos high at gmail.com. And we'd love to be able to answer those, put together either another episode like this of more handbell myths, or if something is a topic that we can work into a full episode in the future, we will gladly do that. And like we mentioned with Facebook, like Brian and I are both individually on Facebook. So search up Brian Seaman or Nick Hansen if you want to just connect with us directly or keep an eye out for our names um, through either our own Facebook posts or Handbell People or other Handbell groups. We're, we're quite active, frank, frankly, on a lot of those groups. We love to engage just as us as Handbell nerds as we are and, and our, our life experiences there. So that direct contact. But of course, we are on Facebook as Two Tacos High, spelled out T-W-O. T-A-C-O-S-H-I-G-H. And we do post there or respond to certain situations or just promote what's going on. We're also on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Instagram, both at Two Tacos High, and our website, twotacoshigh.com, especially our new events page, which has, as far as we know, a really quite extensive list of handle events that are happening throughout the world between now and this summer. We will keep that updated as we learn of new events. But if you are looking for something in your geographical area or handbell musicians of America area, please do look because we have those designated and, and organized by the different areas here in the States. But we also have connection to seminar that's coming up this July symposium that is taking place in Japan in August. And of course, there will be tons of director seminars and like back to bells in the fall that we will add on once we know more about them. But if you are like your webmaster or your events coordinator for your area or your church or anything, let us know. There's a form on that events page that you can fill out information. And we would love to get that onto uh, onto the site to help you promote those events. So please do check that out and send us that information. Thank you for listening today as we busted a few handbell myths and misconceptions. As always, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and for another couple of weeks, Google Podcasts before that goes away. Also, thanks as always to Jillian Perdas for our logo, Mike Joy for his Giovanna Jovanke arrangement of our intro and outro music, and Genevieve G.B. Hansen for keeping Nick and I going with this podcast. They're going to say keeping us in line, but that kind of works Keeping too. us in line too, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Judy. Love you. Thanks as always, everyone. We're so glad you joined us. Until next time, I'm Nick Hansen. And I'm Brian Seaman. This has been Two Tacos High, a handbell podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.